This message comes from NPR sponsor Intuit TurboTax. TurboTax experts file with 100% accuracy guaranteed. See guarantee details at TurboTax.com guarantees. Experts only available with TurboTax Live. Support for this podcast comes from the Neubauer Family Foundation, supporting WHYY's fresh air and its commitment to sharing ideas and encouraging meaningful conversation. This is Fresh Air. I'm Terry Gross. Harry Belafonte, the famous singer, actor, producer, and civil rights activist, died Tuesday of congestive heart failure. He was 96. We're going to listen back to the interview I recorded with him in 1993. His obituary in the New York Times said, quote, At a time when segregation was still widespread and black faces were still a rarity on screens large and small, Mr. Belafonte's ascent to the upper echelon of show business was historic, unquote. In an appreciation in the Times, Wesley Morris described Belafonte as a folk hero. Quote, he understood how to dedicate his fame to a politics of accountability more tenaciously than any star of the civil rights era or in its wake. He helped underwrite the civil rights movement, paying for freedom rides. He maintained a life insurance policy on the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. with Coretta Scott King as the beneficiary because Dr. King didn't believe he could afford it, unquote. Belafonte helped organize the 1963 March on Washington, at which Dr. King gave his famous I Have a Dream speech. Harry Belafonte first became known in the U.S. as a singer. With his 1956 hits Jamaica Farewell and the Banana Boat song, he popularized Calypso in America. Daylight come and me won't go home. Work all night and a drink a rum. Daylight come and me won't go home. Stack banana till the morning come. Daylight come and me won't go home. Come, Mr. Tallyman, tally me banana. Daylight come and me won't go In the 1950s, Belafonte started his film career, starring in such movies as Carmen Jones and Odds Against Tomorrow. But there were few roles for black actors then, and in the 60s, Belafonte shifted his attention to the civil rights movement while continuing to act and to appear on TV. He was born in New York to a Jamaican mother and a father from Martinique. When he was five, his mother sent him to Jamaica. He told me why when we spoke in 1993. Well, my mother was, uh, was my father was uh, constantly away. Uh, she was, for all intents and purposes, a single parent. She was a domestic worker, a woman who was struggling to get over as an immigrant in this country. Her children were left to the, to the whims of the neighborhood and to the streets of New York. And uh, at a very early age, I was hit by an automobile. Oh. and uh, was uh, unconscious for a couple of days at, in, in Harlem Hospital. And that sent a 
uh, horror through my mother, and she felt that I would perhaps be safer uh, in the mountains of Jamaica than I would be in the streets of New York and sent my brother and myself there. What did you think of the idea of going to Jamaica? Well, I didn't mind the idea of going to Jamaica. What really bothered me was the fact that uh, my mother had to leave us there. And once again, there we were thrust into the midst of strangers and people whom we didn't know and, and having to make it on our own, so to speak. And plus the fact that we never stayed in one place very long. My brother and I were quite nomadic. We just went from place to place and never really established a sense of community and never stayed long enough with one family to have ourselves in some centered place. Were the families that you stayed with part of your extended family or were they strangers? Uh, both. Both extended family as well as some strangers. Um, why didn't you stay in one place for a long time? I think it was a matter of economics. I think some people found uh, two additional children to their own families a bit of a burden. Mm-hmm. Uh, they were poor. Uh, so we were constantly shifted from place to place so that others could uh, help share the responsibility. Some places we were just very unhappy in and didn't want to stay and and were sent to other places. But how did you get back to New York? Well, the war broke out between England and Germany. My mother was convinced that, uh, like many people were, that the invincible Nazi machine was going to soon conquer England and what would happen to all of the English possessions, all of their colonies. And she feared for that and then brought us back home uh, uh, when I was 12. And uh, I've been living in America ever since. Was it hard to readjust to Harlem? Very hard. Uh, I had an accent from the Caribbean and I looked different and I had this dyslexic problem that I couldn't adjust to the schools that I was in. And my mother <clears throat> seemed to have... Uh, been very much part of that shifting from place to place to place to place. We lived all over the city uh, within the the ghetto in which we were forced to live. And we moved from one neighborhood to another neighborhood. My mother was always chasing work and uh, chasing places where she thought we would have better accommodations for less money. So they were constantly on the move. So how were you first exposed to theater? When I came out of the Second World War, I was kind of looking for where to go and what to do. And uh, in the interim, uh, I became a janitor's assistant in a building. And uh, I repaired the Venetian blinds in the apartment of a young woman by the name of Clarice Taylor, who is known by many people as the mother of uh, Mr. Huxtable on the Bill Cosby show. And she played the the, the good witch in, uh, in The Wiz. She was the tenant in the apartment, and I repaired the Venetian blinds. She gave me two tickets to a play at a, at a community theater called the American Negro Theater, which was at the Harlem Public Library. And I'd never been to the theater before, and I had this opportunity, so I went. And uh, when the lights went down and the curtain opened and the players walked on, a whole new world opened up for me, and I was deeply touched and moved by it. That's how I got into theater. Could you explain what it was that that really reached you about the performance? I saw people of color on a stage articulating a point of view on a subject, and I found it quite magical. 
And I, mostly I saw people in motion, doing things that were very positive and very creative. And I loved the, the rhythm of the, of, the, of the playwright, the way language flowed, the way people answered and spoke to one another. I became totally involved. As a matter of fact, at the end of the play, I went back to thank her for the ticket. And uh, I had to stand with a long line of people because it was the closing night of the play. And it, it was a repertory uh, format. And uh, they were getting ready to set up the next play and were taking down the sets. So I pitched in to help take down the sets and uh, because I, could, I was good with my hands. And uh, I didn't start off wanting to be a performer. I started off just wanting to be involved. And then they came up with a play for the text to, to begin to dismantle, to find out how to make us build a set for, for it. And uh, the play was Sean O'Casey's Juno and the Paycock. And I became exposed to this Irish playwright who was, I thought, one of the most incredible writers that I'd ever read. And I had not read that much up to that point. So when you started to, to study acting, how did you work on yourself to um, kind of transform yourself into an actor, both in terms of the craft, but also in terms of the type of per- person you thought an actor needed to be? Well, when we got the play... My job was to work with a group of young men and women to build sets. And uh, they needed someone to play the young male lead in the play, and they didn't have anybody within, uh, in, either in the school, at the American Negro Theater, or, and those who had auditioned they found the work were somewhat unacceptable. So they asked me, would I play it? And I just... And in the spirit of, uh, of uh, teamwork, I accepted being a performer, and to perform this part. And when I had to learn the words and then get into the play, then I was deeply touched by the fact that I now had an opportunity to interpret and to articulate the words of this this great writer. And I wanted to do more of that, and I wanted to become proficient in the ability to be able to do that. And in order to acquire this proficiency, I had to go to an institution that was committed fully and solely to this, and it was the New School of Social Research. Erwin Piscotta who ran the school was a German Jew who had uh, escaped uh, Hitler. He was at the Max Reinhardt Theater in Germany. He introduced us to Berthold Brecht and to uh, Jean-Paul Sartre, and he brought a richness of literature and culture to the school. Uh, Many people sought to be in his class, and among my classmates were Marlon Brando, Walter Matthau, B. Arthur, Rod Steiger, Tony Curtis, just a bunch of us, all young kids, just starting out, young men and women, uh, wanting to be in theater. And it was in that environment that I developed this great uh, love and, 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 and comfortability, really, with the idea of being an actor. Once you fell in love with theater and then got your theater training and developed into an actor, were you able to find parts? No, that was the irony of it all. Uh, I then had to deal with racial reality. Uh, no matter how much I loved this thing, if I didn't play in the American Negro Theater or Once Every Millennium when a black play came along, most of which were musicals, uh, there would be no opportunity, really, on a full-time basis. So I was quite prepared to, to flirt with the theater and to do as much as I could in it while looking for some uh, work that would give me the opportunity to pay the rent. Uh, before I could even deal with that, uh, I ran out of the federal subsidy that was given to us to, to, to learn, to, to, to be in this school. Came from the GI Bill. Yeah, GI Bill of Rights. And uh, what happened was that uh, 
I was a, a frequent uh, visitor and a devotee of jazz and a frequent visitor to a place called the Royal Roost. And uh, I went there nightly because our school was only two blocks away from the, the, the nightclub in the middle of the heart of Broadway. And uh, I'd struck up, struck up a friendship with a young man named Monty Kay, and he was the promoter and the impresario for everything that went on in that club. And uh, he'd heard me sing in a school play, only as an exercise for the play. And he then said to me, well, I've heard you sing. Why don't you learn a few songs? Come into the club. I'll make you an intermission singer. And during that time, you'll be able to make enough money to continue to pursue your studies in the school, if the school will then give you a scholarship. And I went to the administrators of the school, and they gave me a scholarship, and I started to sing to pay my way through school. The singing then got so popular, and people responded so strongly to it that I feared that it would take me away from the theater. And I didn't consider myself a significantly important jazz singer. I didn't find that pop music particularly moved me uh, to the place that I wanted to go after this heavy encounter with Shakespeare and Tolstoy and Chekhov and all the things we were doing as students. So I quit and uh, singing, and I opened up a small restaurant with a couple of other friends with the money that I'd saved call the sage in Greenwich Village and while there uh, studying during the day and working at night I discovered the Village Vanguard a nightclub in New York which was rich with folk artists and I discovered Lead Belly and I discovered Big Bill Bronzy and I discovered Pete Seeger and I discovered Woody Guthrie and much to my amazement and delight I discovered Josh White <clears throat> I, I, I saw these men and women singing songs that came from all walks of life. It wasn't just songs about unrequited love. They were filled with drama. They were filled with characters. They were filled with parables and, and metaphor. And uh, I saw in that the opportunity to apply my acting skills. And since I had a voice that was fairly comfortable to listeners, that I would then be, have the instrument to be able to do this. And I began to develop a repertoire. And with that, I then opened at the Village Vanguard, and uh, I just haven't looked back since. We're listening to the interview I recorded with Harry Belafonte in 1993. Let's pause for a song from his 1958 album, Belafonte Sings the Blues. Hello, Mary Ann. You know you sure look fine. Hello, Mary Ann. You know you sure look fine. Well, oh, Mary Ann, I could love you all the time. Oh, Mary Ann, I say, baby, don't you know? Oh, Mary Ann, oh, well, baby, don't you know? Don't you know, don't you know, pretty baby, that I love you so? You were really one of the first first people from the entertainment world to become active within the civil rights movement. What did, was there a period that was a a, a, a turning point or a consciousness raising period for you? Yes, when I was born. <laughs> okay. And uh, it was later on exercised even more when the when the war came, Second World War, and I got into it, and America propagandized us about 
ending totalitarianism and ending fascism and ending uh, racial superiority and ending anti-Semitism and making the world perfect for uh, a, a meaningful future. And I believed that. And when I came back to, to my home, after having done a tour of duty and the war ended, we expected that there was going to be some reward for all that we had done. Just little things like taking down the segregation signs as a gift to those of us who fought to make America safe and to end the world with, uh, uh, you know, uh, from end the world's tyranny. And uh, that didn't happen. The option was to acquiesce and to go back to business as usual or to use our strength and our energy to make sure that uh, America would never be comfortable in going back to business as usual. And I decided that that's what I would do as an artist and as a human being and as a person. That was when my activism started. A lot of people th who did not know that part of my life have made assumptions that it wasn't until I became famous that I then turned to social and political activity. But that's not true. Paul Robeson was a mentor of mine. I tried to pattern my life after what I saw him do, his dignity, his strength, his courage. Dr. Du Bois was, a, was, a, was someone whom I sought out, and I, I met him accidentally, and I sought him out afterwards and listened to him speak and listened to his thoughts. He was one of the greatest intellects that this country ever produced and certainly one of the greatest in the black community. And in that environment, these men were great social thinkers. Eleanor Roosevelt became a friend of mine. She, too, had her own thoughts on, on social and, and political conditions. How did you meet Martin Luther King? He called me. I was in New York, and uh, he was coming here to visit for the first time in Harlem at uh, Adam Clayton Powell's church, the Abyssinian. Uh, he was talking to a group of people in the, from the clergy, and I asked would I meet him after that meeting, and I said yes, and we met in the basement of the church. And you became pretty good friends? Very good friends. We became very, very close. After, he, after I spoke to him in the room and he told me of his mission and what he hoped to be able to achieve, albeit he didn't know quite where the path would lead us, but he knew that it was a fight that had to be made and he needed everyone he could get and asked me if I would join. I said, yes, I would. You're about to perform in New York. Um, how do you feel about the old songs that you recorded in the 50s? I feel very good about them. I thought there were songs that were very much... Uh, Instructive. I thought they brought people to places that they had never been before. I think it makes them take focus on a group of people in a region that they perhaps knew nothing about. Paul Robeson once said to me, get people to sing your song and they must then, then they'll be required to know who you are. There's a certain raspiness to your speaking voice. Does that come through in your singing voice too now? No, because I, I engage different muscles uh, when I sing. My, my diaphragm kicks in more fully and I project more, more, more fully. I'm prone to talk softly. And air escapes because of a, a tilted larynx, which I have, which uh, permits air to come out uh, in, in, in a free-flow, uncontrolled way that I would not ordinarily have were my larynx straight. But it was an act of birth. And uh, as a matter of fact... The, the print of my voice I like very much. It's like Louis Armstrong or mm -hmm. others who have a, a, a voice that's just very different from everyone else's. And what it forced me to do was to interpret material in a way that would accommodate this impediment or this Im imperfection uh, and therefore gave me a very unique approach to my singing that people liked and I loved it. And I took great confidence in the fact that one did not need... I think if you've got it, you should sound like a Pavarotti or sound like a Leontine Price or whatever. 
but uh, when I heard people like Walter Houston sing, who had mm-hmm. a gruffy voice, and mm-hmm. when I listened to other singers, uh, I was confident that I could move comfortably in the world of art and be accepted for what I was. I want to thank you very much for telling us some of your story. Thank you very much for being with us. Thank you. My interview with Harry Belafonte was recorded in 1993. He died Tuesday of congestive heart failure. He was 96. After we take a short break, we'll hear from a doula who works with pregnant women whether they plan on giving birth or having an abortion. And David Bianculi will review the new eight-episode drama, Fatal Attraction, a reworking of the 1987 film of the same name. I'm Terry Gross, and this is Fresh Air. This message is brought to you by Apple Pay. Fussing with plastic cards should be a thing of the past. Instead, pay the Apple way. Apple Pay is easy, secure, and built into iPhone. All you have to do is set it up. Just add a card in the Wallet app and you're good to go. This message comes from NPR sponsor Capella University. Sometimes it takes a different approach to unlock your true potential. Capella University's game-changing FlexPath learning format is designed to help you learn relevant skills at your own pace so you can earn your degree on your terms and apply what you learn right away. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. At this year's Oscars, Oppenheimer took home the award for Best Picture, Emma Stone and Robert Downey Jr. also picked up wins, and Ryan Gosling brought the Kennergy. For a recap of all the highlights, listen to the Pop Culture Happy Hour podcast from NPR. This is Fresh Air. I'm Terry Gross. My guest, Vicki Bloom, is a doula. Typically, doulas provide support for women during pregnancy and childbirth. But Bloom describes herself as a full-spectrum doula, working with people no matter how the pregnancy proceeds, whether it results in birth, miscarriage, stillbirth, or abortion. Since 2010, she's worked with the Doula Project, a New York City-based collective that partners with clinics to support pregnant people whether the result is childbirth or termination. The doulas are volunteers, which enables the Doula Project to fulfill its goal of providing free emotional, physical, and informational support to low-income women and to marginalized communities. Bloom is a member of the leadership circle of the Doula Project. She says she's especially drawn to support people who may fall through the cracks of the medical system or feel unheard through the process of birth or abortion. Note to parents of young children, we're going to have an adult conversation about reproductive issues. Vicki Bloom, welcome to Fresh Air. Can you give us a brief overview of what the work is as a doula in childbirth and what the work is as a doula in abortion? So a doula in general is a non-medical professional who provides pure support. They're not there in a medical role, so they're not doing any of the medical procedures. They're there for that person as a human being, as a person. In the birth experience, that may be helping them figure out what they want, helping them find their voice, and helping them in the moment-to-moment to manage what's going on as they're giving birth. In the abortion context, it may look more like... Again, physical comfort techniques, you bring a lot of the same physical techniques in. It might be massage, hand-holding, hot pads, cooling someone's brow. All of those things may come up again, but it's also in that sense holding space for that person, whatever they're feeling, letting them feel in the moment, helping them feel safe, helping them feel like they're 
having an experience that they need to have in a way that feels comforting to them. Are you seeing a lot more medical abortions because of the end of Roe? Or have medical abortions just taken off because they're easier? Like, what kind of changes have you witnessed in the past few years? Medication abortion has been on the rise for a number of years now. And at this point, more than half of early abortions in the United States are done via medication. One big change that happened is originally in most states, possibly all states, I'm not sure, um, but originally... If you go back a number of years, in order to have a medication abortion, you needed to go into a clinic or go to a provider. You'd have a consultation with that provider, and you would take the first pill, the um, mifepristone pill, in the office. And then you would take the other pills, the misoprostol pills, you would take them home and take them at home 24 to 48 hours later, because that's the medical protocol. But when the pandemic happened, there was a temporary federal law put in place that basically allowed medication abortion to happen entirely via telemedicine so that you could consult with the doctor um, over video or over the phone and have those pills mailed to you and then be able to complete the medication abortion entirely at home. And then in late 2021, that rule was made permanent. So in any state where you can have a medication abortion, they can do it via um, telemed. And that's the reason, actually, that the Doula Project developed this medication abortion hotline, which we have, which is a 24-7 hotline where people can text in and get support from their medication abortion because it's becoming more and more likely that they are completing that abortion from their home rather than from a clinic. Given how comparatively easy it seems to take, you know, a few pills as opposed to having a a clinical abortion, which involves um, the suctioning of the uterus, why would anyone choose now to have an in-clinic abortion as opposed to a medication abortion? I wouldn't necessarily say that a medication abortion is easier. It's different. When you go in for an aspiration abortion into a clinic, it's very fast, You go in and the actual procedure can take less than 10 minutes. And then there may be some after effects of some bleeding, some cramping, but it's it's quick. When you take a medication abortion, it's a few days of a procedure. You're going to take the first pill and then wait 24 to 48 hours. And that process of the uterus releasing its contents has a lot of bleeding a lot of cramping, a lot of nausea sometimes, and it's physically a much rougher procedure, even if it's logistically for many people a much easier procedure and also a more private procedure. When you're working with a woman who's having an abortion, whether it's in clinic or medication, do you sometimes find that they still have doubts? that they're, they're going through it, but part of their mind is still questioning it? And if so, what role do you play in helping them think it through? I don't do a lot of choice counseling. By the time people come to me, they certainly usually have made a decision. But I find very frequently that I tell my clients that a right decision does not always feel like an easy decision. 
And I'm really with them through whatever talking through they want to do, whatever emotional experience they may be having. People have all kinds of emotional experiences during abortions. They may have a mix of relief and grief. They may be thinking about a what if, even if at the same time that they have made a decision that they feel comfortable with. One thing that sometimes happens is that people who may have been politically not very supportive of abortion, find themselves in a situation where they need an abortion and have decided to have one, but they have a lot of cognitive dissonance about that. And I am very compassionate about that because theoretical things and real things can feel very different to people. What I'm not compassionate about, and this does happen, is when someone comes in, gets the support, may have their abortion, and then may walk out to protest the next day. When you are working as a doula for somebody having an abortion, and this person opposes abortion for political or religious or whatever other reasons, but feels it necessary to have one, what's the experience like for you? How do you work with them? What special needs do they have? I'm often frustrated when I work with clients who have that orientation, But I do come to them with a lot of compassion because they're coming into that experience with a huge amount of cognitive dissonance. They're going in doing something that they feel is necessary but also in a certain sense wrong. I have been in clinic and had a client say to me, I'm here because I have to be. How can you live with yourself when you wake up every morning and walk in here knowing that you're helping people kill their babies? It's hard to hear, for sure. It's hard to hear that kind of an attack. But I know that that person is really working through the fact that they feel that this is necessary and also in a certain sense that they're very uncomfortable for it. I have very little tolerance, at least from a general basis, for people who think that they're different than somebody else who might have this procedure, who think that they're special somehow, because this is a common experience for a lot of people. And every person who comes to this has to come to it with sort of understanding what's going on with their body, what's going on with their world. But nevertheless, that person who is having to do something that in a sense they don't feel good about is somebody who's having a very hard time and who really needs a lot of compassion. With medication abortion, you know, you're taking the pills at home. What kind of support does a woman need um, when she's having that kind of abortion? They might need all kinds of support. The Doula Project did start our medication abortion support hotline for people to reach out during the process of their medication abortion if they needed support. A medication abortion can take many hours, and for many people, those hours might be in the middle of the night, which is why we run it 24-7. People would need any um, informational support. I think one of the biggest things that people want to know during a process when something happening is, is this normal? Because it can be sometimes startling. There's more blood than people expect sometimes when the uterus is releasing all at once. And, um, you know, and there's a pregnancy, so there's more there than there would be for, say, a typical period. Or they may want help with figuring out the nausea. They may be having that 3 a.m. dark moment of the soul where they just need somebody to talk to because they're feeling alone. 
someone who's having a medication abortion at home may have lots of support there, or they may be sitting in a room by themselves not telling anyone that's going on and maybe even trying to keep it secret from a family member or a roommate who might be in the home. So it's really anything that someone might need um, to just make sure that they're that they are feeling okay and that they feel supported because that can be a lonely or scary experience. Well, let me reintroduce you and then we'll talk some more. If you're just joining us, my guest is Vicki Bloom. She's a full-spectrum doula who is in the leadership circle of the Doula Project in New York City. We'll be back after a short break. This is Fresh Air. This message comes from Apple Card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase. That's 3% on products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. At the Planet Money Podcast, we talk to anyone who can help us understand the economy. Fortune tellers, tango dancers. Obscure government bureaucrats. Oh, the obscure ones are the best. Totally. And of course, we talk to the smartest economists to explain everything from inflation and disinflation to how manatees got addicted to fossil fuel. That is Planet Money from NPR. This is Fresh Air. Let's get back to my interview with Vicki Bloom, a full-spectrum doula working with people no matter how the pregnancy proceeds, whether it results in birth, miscarriage, stillbirth, or abortion. She's in the leadership circle of the Doula Project in New York City. One of your missions is to work with marginalized communities, including people who are lesbians, trans men, people who identify as non-binary. And I'm wondering... When people who are having birth, particularly the people who identify as trans men or non-binary, when they're giving birth and they're using female reproductive organs, does it change their relationship to their body? In the context of abortion, a trans man or a non-binary person who identifies more on the masculine side of the binary may find it extraordinarily dysphoric to find themselves pregnant. And that may be something that comes up that we discuss as a doula when we're in that situation where they're having an abortion that they may feel, you know, feel tough about having gynecological care in general and that a doula who is experienced with that community is able to help them navigate that. In terms of a non-binary person or a trans man who has chosen to become pregnant or who has found themselves pregnant and has chosen to give him, give birth, um, it really varies very widely in terms of how people are engaging with their body. I think that people overall, if they are choosing to go through a pregnancy, are really reconciling themselves to the fact that their body is doing something that is not typical for their gender identity. The part that can be very hard is the context of the birth industry or the the people around birth where, you know, if you go to a parenting class, you don't expect to have pregnant masculine people in the parenting class necessary and not all instructors are good on that. In the context of a hospital, 
I find myself with some of my clients doing what is often called code switching, which is to use different language depending on who's in the room. So I may use he, him pronouns or they, them pronouns for my client because that's what they prefer in their life. But they've chosen not to engage that topic with every person in the hospital. So once a doctor walks in the room, we may be using she, her pronouns for that person just because they didn't want to deal. When you're talking about um, pregnancy, you use the word pregnant people as opposed to pregnant women. And I presume that... Because you work with so many non-binary uh, pregnant people who don't identify necessarily as women, or trans men who certainly don't identify as women. Can you talk about that language change a little bit and how how you feel about it? I feel very good about it. I think that this is something which has started to propagate in at least um, more progressive parts of the birth community and the reproductive justice community because we want to make sure that everybody who this affects, which is really everybody who has a uterus, is included. We don't want to be exclusive where we feel like certain people for whom these things are important feel left out. And so I think it's a good move in language to be inclusive in general. My goal as a doula, as I said, is to make anybody who's going through reproductive health experiences feel comfortable and feel safe and feel like they're seen for who they are. And some of those people don't identify as women. What are some of the emotional highs and lows you've experienced as a doula in helping women through childbirth or abortion? Well, I'd say in terms of lows, some of those experiences where I'm working with somebody, especially in the abortion context where, like I said, I might only be with them for under an hour. And they've got a lot of complicated, rough things in their life that they're expressing to me in the moment. And, you know, I might work with someone who might be having a relationship trouble, might be having some conflict with a partner for abortion, might be pregnant as the effect of a rape or an assault, might just really be having financial trouble. And I know that I can help them in the moment with this one thing, but I can't fix their life, even if they've unburdened their whole life to me. I'm in a role for a moment. And there can be a lot of, a lot of sadness there to have to let go, especially in a clinic context. You might be working with eight clients in a day, and I need to be able to refresh, take a few deep breaths, ground, and then be there for the next person. Some of my colleagues in the doula project used to always say that it was good in New York City that nobody cared if you cried on the subway because they would come out of clinic and there would just be so much emotion and so much going on that they would cry. On the other hand, um, I have had hilarious conversations with people during their abortions. I once spoke to somebody who worked in a fast food restaurant in Times Square in the overnight shift, and she spent her whole abortion telling me about the crazy people who walk into this fast food restaurant at 2 a.m. in Times Square. And she and I and the um, doctor 
were just laughing and laughing through the whole thing. And then the doctor's like, you're done. And she said, oh, okay. And, you know, we moved on. And there was a lot of joy there. You know, we also, I've also worked with people who are experiencing a loss. Um, I've worked with, I worked with a client once whose um, partner had died a few days before she gave birth. And so she was giving birth and there was some joy in having the baby and some joy in seeing him in the baby, but he was gone. Anything can happen during these experiences. It's, it's a microcosm of everything in life, the highest highs, the lowest lows. And as a doula, you have to be there for whatever comes up because you don't know what's going to come up for somebody. And your goal is just to be in presence with people, however things come together. Well, Vicki Bloom, I want to thank you very much for talking with us. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure to talk to you today. Vicki Bloom is a doula and is in the leadership circle of the Doula Project in New York. After we take a short break, TV critic David Bianculi will review the eight-episode drama Fatal Attraction, a reworking of the 1987 film. This is Fresh Air. This message comes from NPR sponsor BetterHelp. If you had an extra hour in the day, how would you use it? BetterHelp Online Therapy can help you figure out what's most important to you so you can prioritize it. Learn to make time for what makes you happy. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Visit BetterHelp.com NPR today to get 10% off your first month. This message comes from NPR sponsor Solgar. As people age, cellular function declines, which may impact changes in energy and strength. Solgar Cellular Nutrition is a holistic collection of cellular nutrients formulated to help fight cellular decline and promote cell health. Learn more at cellularnutrition.solgar.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. This message comes from NPR sponsor Stearns & Foster. To Stearns & Foster, your comfort is their everything. So they've made a mattress that's irresistible inside and out. Every Stearns & Foster mattress is handcrafted. Every stitch, every layer uses the finest materials, like indulgent memory foam and ultra-conforming IntelliCoils for the coziness you want with the support you need. Timeless quality for your most comfortable sleep. Stearns & Foster, what comfort should be. More at StearnsAndFoster.com. This is Fresh Air. This Sunday, the Paramount Plus streaming service presents the first three episodes of its new eight-episode drama, Fatal Attraction. It's a reworking and expansion of the 1987 Adrian Lyne film, an erotic thriller that's still talked about and argued about all these decades later. In the original film, Michael Douglas played a married man who had a heated sexual encounter with a mentally unstable woman played by Glenn Close, only to have her begin harassing him and his family, ultimately ending with her death. This new version stars Joshua Jackson and Lizzie Kaplan. Our TV critic David Bianculi has this review. There are two obvious reasons to mount a new version of Fatal Attraction based on the novel by James Dearden. One is that the Adrian Lyne film became such a major hit that as intellectual property properties go, it's a title and a premise that's very familiar and easily marketable. The movie also has been the subject of such heated debate 
a debate which has grown as the years have gone by, that it's ripe for a new, perhaps less sexist and misogynist interpretation. Whether this new version delivers a substantially different interpretation is something I won't reveal here because it's part of the suspense. But this new eight-part TV version from Paramount Plus does just fine on the marketing, and the casting is a big part of that. Joshua Jackson, a sympathetic presence on screen ever since Dawson's Creek, plays Dan Gallagher. Amanda Peet plays his wife, Beth, and Lizzie Kaplan plays Alex Forrest, the woman who stalks Dan after he cuts off their brief affair. Kaplan already has done spellbinding work playing complicated characters in the TV series Masters of Sex and, more recently, Fleischman is in Trouble. And she does it again here, sometimes in spite of her material. By expanding the narrative to eight hours, these TV adapters, Alexandra Cunningham and Kevin J. Hines, end up diluting their own focus. The story is now told in two primary timelines. In present day, when Dan is released from prison after serving 15 years for convicted murder, and back in 2008, when he first meets and begins interacting with Alex. And in addition to those twin timelines, there are various viewpoints. Primarily, we see things from Dan's perspective, but sometimes we see things from Alex's point of view, or Dan's wife Beth or even other characters, including Dan and Beth's now-grown daughter Ellen, played by Alyssa Jarrells. It's all a bit like Rashomon, with scenes revisited to add a different context. But it's also a bit heavy-handed. In this retelling, there isn't a lot of subtext, just a lot of text. Very obvious text, like a lot of quotations from psychologist Carl Jung, and scenes that are laid out too clunkily to feel at all normal. Here's an early scene, for example, with Dan and Alex at the beach. It's a scene that's supposed to show their instant and easy emotional connection by swapping lists of things they dislike. But it all feels so forced, their chemistry isn't at all obvious, much less convincing. Also, I always forget that there's a lot of wind at the beach. Mm. Yeah, I'm not really a fan of that. Of wind? Really? Really. What are some other things you pretend to like? <laughs> Um, live music, my neighbors, <laughs> museums. In fact, I might have to go a few steps further and just say art. Hmm. Hats on anyone. Just so stupid. Why? <laughs> Traveling. Ugh, the worst. Anything that I need to develop a taste for. And the holidays. Feedback. Mm. Any kind of feedback. Mm -hmm. Well, my feedback is that the makers of this new Fatal Attraction could have done without including such tired, obvious scenes. And without bringing psychology to the forefront and adding subplots about whether Dan actually did the crime for which he was imprisoned or how and if his daughter will accept him back in her life. The only subplot that works effectively, really, features Toby Huss, who plays Dan's friend Mike and a persistent supporter and investigator on Dan's behalf. His performance and Kaplan's will carry you through Fatal Attraction, when otherwise you might be tempted to drift away. But stay for Kaplan as Alex, who, once she becomes a woman scorned, gets to dive into her role with a fury. Literally. 
as when she places a phone call to Dan from a bar after he's a no-show again. Hi, it's me, again. And we have this new special, this robiola cheese with roasted tomatoes. You know, for me to order not meatballs, it must be pretty good. But I don't know how much longer it'll be on the menu, so this is your heads up, because I haven't seen you here in a while. It's starting to make me feel like maybe I misunderstood something, except I really don't think that I did. I think you might have, though. And so I want to help. I want to help you be the man that I know that you are, for your sake and for everybody else's. But in order to do that, I can't let you pretend like I don't exist. Because I do exist. And I'm not going to be ignored, Dan. That call lets you know what to expect from the rest of this new fatal attraction. That was enough to keep me watching, even through all the clunky detours. But whether or not that entices you to tune in and stay with Paramount Plus's fatal attraction, well, that's your call. David Bianculli is a professor of television studies at Rowan University. He reviewed the new TV drama, Fatal Attraction. It begins Sunday on Paramount+. Plus. If you'd like to catch up on fresh air interviews you missed, like this week's interview with Judy Bloom, or with Virginia Soul Smith, author of Fat Talk, Parenting in the Age of Diet Culture, check out our podcast. You'll find lots of fresh air interviews. And if you want to read about what's happening behind the scenes at Fresh Air and get some good stories and suggestions from our producers, subscribe to our newsletter. You'll find a link at freshair.npr.org. I'm always happy to read it Saturday mornings when it arrives in my email. Fresh Air's executive producer is Danny Miller. Our technical director is Audrey Bentham. Our engineer today is Adam Staniszewski. Our interviews and reviews are produced and edited by Amy Sallett, Phyllis Myers, Roberta Shurrock, Sam Brigger, Lauren Krenzel, Heidi Saman, Anne-Marie Baldonado, Teresa Madden, Seth Kelly, and Susan Yakundi. Our digital media producer is Molly C.V. Nesper. Thea Challoner directed today's show. I'm Terry Gross. This message comes from NPR sponsor, ShipBob. ShipBob's warehouse management system can improve your efficiency, allow you to grow faster, and save you money all through one WMS platform. Get a free quote at shipbob.com. Want all of NPR without relying on your radio? Visit npr.org to be connected to your local station wherever you are and wherever the news takes you. Get your vital mix of rigorously reported local and national stories all live, free, and at your fingertips at npr.org.